And you recall uh, that in our last session together, we, talk, we were, began to talk about the subject of soteriology as it's woven into the book of Acts, uh, particularly from the viewpoint of the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, we said, first of all, that there were three things involved, at least uh, as we are viewing it here, in regard to the subject of salvation, soteriology. The conditions of salvation, the consequences of salvation, and the constraints of salvation. Now, we just got started on that first one, the conditions of salvation, and um, we, we said that, first of all, there is a faith defined in the book of Acts, that is, someone who believed, but it was not unto salvation. Uh, that is the first thing involved. There is a, it's possible for a person to have a belief that is not a genuine trust in Jesus Christ. And we saw that in the story of Simon, also in the story of Agrippa, uh, where Agrippa really said he believed, that is, the historical facts concerning Jesus Christ. But he fell short of accepting Christ as his own personal Savior. So there's a faith that is not unto salvation. Secondly, we saw that saving faith must be in Jesus Christ. There's no salvation in any other. It always was faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, so therefore, in every passage where the disciples are involved, now the apostles involved in ministering to people, they ministered to them in regard to the subject of salvation being in Jesus Christ and only in faith in Jesus Christ. Thirdly, the message, obviously, is made known through the disciples. That is, through followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember uh, that uh, a disciple, indeed, is a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, one who sits at his feet and then who, one who goes out as his representative. And uh, so, therefore, the message had to be made known through the disciples. Fourthly, we saw that the act of believing is by grace, and thus it's rooted in the eternal counsels of God. And we looked at a number of passages in Acts concerning that. That's something that's taught a little more clearly in the epistles, but it's also taught in the book of Acts. It was accomplished, what was accomplished in the saving of souls was done according to grace. It was not something where men just decided, well, I think I'll choose God today. It was much more than that, because in the eternal counsels of God, God brought men by grace to salvation. And so therefore, much of the initiative, if we could say it that way, really, we would have to say, analyzing it theologically, that the, that, that the initiative entirely is that uh, which came from Almighty God. No man can come to Jesus Christ except the Spirit of God draw him. So the act of believing is by grace and thus rooted in the eternal counsels of God. And then we saw that a synonym for faith is repentance. And we looked at this idea of, of repentance, and that's where we finished up last time, and saw that re repentance was not a condition or a prerequisite or even a consequence of salvation, but it was a vital part of faith, and it meant changing one's mind. And uh, though, of course, implied in all of that might be a change of life, because that naturally follows. Yet the implication truly of the idea of a person repenting is that he has changed his mind concerning Jesus Christ, changed his mind concerning his own ability to save himself, changed his mind concerning his own, uh, his own goodness, 
whatever is necessary, but primarily changing of a mind so that a person believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's an integral part of faith. But now tonight, we want to pick up on this a little further in regard to conditions of salvation and talk about one of the key passages in the book of Acts. And let's turn then to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. This is the pivotal passage on ecclesiology in the book of Acts, that is, the doctrine of the church. It is the pivotal passage. And this particular passage deals with the question as to whether faith and faith alone is sufficient for salvation. Is faith enough? Is there more to it than merely faith? Is there an admixture of faith and works? Or is there indeed faith and faith alone? We've already said there's a faith that is not unto salvation. We've said that, there, that it's faith in Jesus Christ that is involved. But now the question arises, is it faith plus or is it faith period? Is it by grace through faith plus nothing or is it by grace through faith with the addition at least of some works? Now, the 15th chapter of the book of Acts is a chapter that deals with the question of circumcision primarily. And circumcision stands as sort of a symbol of the whole question of law versus grace, faith versus works, and all of the rest of it. And in this passage, we want to divide it up uh, to, just for the sake of, of teaching the passage uh, somewhat topically here so that we can understand what was going on. We begin with the problem. There, first of all, is a problem. Now, in order to see that, first of all, let's look at the exponents of the problem, the exponents of this whole story. If you'll look at verse 1, you'll see, And certain men who came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. Now notice who they are, certain men who came down from Judea. Came down from the province of Judea, the uh, province that is in and around Jerusalem, and uh, taught the, the brethren uh, that saying that if, except they be circumcised, this is at Antioch now, except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. Does that ring true with you? Does that ring true? Well, okay, but this is the question and this is the problem. These are the exponents, these men that came down from Judea. Now verse 5, but there rose up, there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees who believed saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now this gives us a little finer definition. Actually, apparently these men were men who had had a legalistic, legal background with the law as a Jew. And they now have trusted Jesus Christ and probably really trusted Him by faith for salvation. But in their teaching, they are saying, Gentiles. Now, mind you, it was no issue with them. And you should understand that. It was no issue with the Pharisee who accepted Christ. 
because he'd already been circumcised, and so that was taken care of. So he could trust in Christ. But then he began to think, well, you know, circumcision has always been required for the Jew. Therefore, if a Gentile is going to come into the family of God, he also must undergo this matter of circumcision. All right? Now, just hold your finger there a minute, and let's uh, cheat just a little bit. and Go over to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Because the book of Galatians deals basically with the same problem. And we're not going to, we're going to avoid getting involved in all of the arguments of the book of Galatians. But we're going to just uh, spin off of a couple of verses here. All right? Galatians chapter 1, and let's look at verse 6. Paul says to the people at Galatia who had gotten involved in much similar problem, he says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of of Christ to another gospel. And the word there is heteros. Another, a different sort. We get the word hetero or heterosexual um, rather than, than, uh, than homosexual. It means, it means uh, different sexes rather than one sex, if you can get that very familiar terminology. And that's where we, we get the word hetero from this word. Heteros means different than. It means another, but it's another which is different than. Now watch that because you, you have to move through this passage with that in mind. Because then it says, which is not another. How can you have another which is not another? Well, there are two different words in the Greek. The first word is heteros, which means another different from. And the second is alos, which means another the same as. So therefore, he says, I marvel that you are so, so soon removed from him that called you <clears throat> into the grace of Christ unto another different sort of gospel, which is not the same kind of gospel, but that there are some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. And Paul goes on and says, For though we are an angel from heaven, <clears throat> by the way, there's a very popular cult which uh, claims that an angel from heaven came and gave another gospel. That's interesting, isn't it? And it's a gospel of works, incidentally. Paul says, Even if I were to come as an apostle, or if an angel from heaven came and preached unto you any other gospel than that which we have preached, let him be accursed. Now, the, the problem in the church of Galatia was similar to the problem that we're facing here in Acts chapter 15. Now, one more thing concerning these exponents then of, the gospel, of this uh, perversion of the gospel. It was widespread. Look at chapter 15, verses 23 and 24. They had many converts. It says, and they wrote letters by them after this manner. The apostles and the elders and brothers send greeting unto the brethren who, have, who are of, of Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicily. For as much as we have heard that certain who went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. You see, it's not a matter of an isolated thing. There was, a, there was an attempt to reach as many people as possible with this perverted gospel. And so it was very, very widespread. The exponents themselves were men who were Pharisees, but they had 
converted. They had brought and troubled, at least, a great many people. So it was a very widespread problem. Now that has to do with the exponents. Now let's think for a moment, and although we've touched on it, about the essence. The essence. Again, looking at verse 1 and verse 5, it says, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. Verse 5, it says, saying it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, that's something that's added, uh, but is a part of the truth here. First of all, the major issue was that of circumcision. The second issue had to do with all of the ritual law of Moses. And so, uh, when it says that they should be circumcised and keep the law, it would include, include the Mosaic law, but it would also include the Mishnah. Now, the Mishnah was the commentary, the Jewish commentary on Mosaic law. And you see, Moses said one thing, the Mishnah explained it a different way. The, the, the Moses said you shouldn't work on the Sabbath. The Mishnah said that if you put a, any kind of a bandage on a sore with any kind of ointment that would draw out the pain, would draw out the infection, and if that was on on the Sabbath, that was a no-no. Couldn't do that because that was work on the Sabbath. That was the way they interpreted it. They said that if you rode into town on a donkey, that uh, you were allowed to loosen the girth around the donkey, but you couldn't lift the load off. Now, if it fell to the ground, then you were able to pick it up and carry it in the house. But if it stayed on the back of the donkey, then you're stuck. You've got to leave it there until it falls off. Now, that was the kind of thing that the Mishnah taught. The Mishnah also taught that, uh, that if you had a, a certain amount of money, Christ referred to this, remember when he was talking with the Pharisees, he said if you had, uh, had a certain amount of money and you wanted to dedicate that to God, you could go ahead and spend it on yourself, but that way you wouldn't have to give any inheritance to your parents. And that was another part of the Mishnah. These were interpretations of the law. When a Pharisee would say, keep the law of Moses, he meant more than the law of Moses. Undoubtedly, he meant these other additions as well. And remember that what Christ said concerning that? He says, you teach for the commandments of God the commandments of men. Maybe we ought to just look over at Mark 7 for a second. Mark chapter 7. See what Christ felt about this kind of business. Mark 7, verse 7. However, in vain do they worship me. See that? In vain they worship me. Teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God. Ye hold the tradition of men. It's the washing of pots and cups and many other such things ye do. Requiring ceremonial cleansing of kitchen utensils and all of that. Look a little further back to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23, right near the end of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 23, 4, he says this, For they, that is, these Pharisees, sitting in Moses' seat, he says earlier in the text, for they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers, but all their works they do to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garment, love the uppermost place at the feast, and so on. He's saying, you know, they're, 
They're commanding that everybody keep the Mosaic law to the letter of the law, yet they themselves will cheat every chance they got. It's hypocrisy, and Christ makes that very clear. But now these are the men, you see, some of which had been converted now, and now are trying to do the same old trick that the Pharisees had tried to do with the law of Moses. Now the law of Christ, they're trying to, ex trying to require things that are not required. Now incidentally, let me just say a word about the concept of legalism. We need to understand that. Legalism basically involves two things. Legalism is trying to impose a standard on someone else which is not clearly biblical, first of all. All right? That's a half of legalism. That is where I see somebody doing something that I don't approve of, maybe because of my cultural background, maybe because of the home in which I was raised, or a million and one other things, I have no right to impose on that man a standard that I have, unless the Scripture speaks very clearly concerning it. Otherwise, it's legalism. The other part of legalism is this. Trying to do something to appear spiritual trying to do something to appear spiritual or not do something I could say just as easily the converse is true to uh, to refrain from doing something to seem spiritual the legalist that kind of a legalist is a person who down deep in his heart when he goes to this party you know down deep in his heart he'd love to have a nip a drink you know really he'd like it but he he really wants to put on this front, this image, you see. And so, when they offer it to him, he says, Oh no, I don't drink. I'm a Christian. See? That's legalism. Because he is trying to, to demonstrate a standard that is not really a true standard. And he's doing it to appear spiritual. Even though down in his heart he's as bad a sinner as every drunk in the place. See? And that is, that's legalism. And see, the answer to legalism is grace. And yet these people now are imposing a standard which is fine, as we see later. It is fine for a Jew who, because of cultural reasons, wants to have his, his, his male children circumcised. No problem. And it's probably healthier, as doctors today will tell us at least some doctors. But to impose that on someone else as a spiritual issue or especially as a part of salvation is desperately wrong. And that's the whole issue. All right, now, let's think in terms of the error. The error. Once again, let's pop back to Galatians for a second. Just so we delineate in a brief way the error that is being propounded here. Now, the first ten verses of chapter 2 deals with this, of Galatians. But look now at the fourth verse, and that is taken out of context in this place, but I want you to think of it in terms of its context. And look at the fourth verse, because this is the key now, and that because of false brethren. Notice what he says? They're false brethren. Why? Because they're legalists. 
false brethren, unawares brought in, who came in secretly to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. That is the error of this passage in Acts chapter 15, to bring us into bondage, to spy out our liberty, to take away from us the true freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. Look at Romans chapter 11. Here's the issue now. And this expands on the error involved. Romans 11 verse 6. If, this is talking now about an individual coming to salvation through the Spirit of God drawing the concept of the election of grace as we see in verse 5. If by grace, then it is no more of works. Now watch this. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. The two are mutually exclusive. They do not mix. Now you watch. Next time you pick up a track, I hope we don't have any out here in our track rack, you watch and see if they list six things you have to do for salvation. Now, there's nothing wrong with, you know, the four spiritual laws, which are concepts, and where it's a matter of recognizing, you know, one, that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Those are concepts. Those are not steps to salvation. But there are some people that say you've got to clean up your life, which is a ridiculous thing. You can't do that before you're saved. Everybody's been trying, you know. No way. They start adding all of these things. And those things that when you add, what do you do? Well, then this is works. And grace is over here. Well, you say, can't you have both? No. That's what Paul said here. You can't have both. It's one or the other. Now, you know, you take, you take a cult like the Mormons as an example. Uh, they've got more problems than this, but let's simplify it. One of the big problems is that the Jesus that they talk about by, def by biblical definition is not the same as the Jesus we talk about. So you've got a problem. There's another Jesus. Paul ta uh, talked about that as well. So you've got a problem there. But let's just think of it in terms of, of the matter of, uh, uh, of the, the cult itself in regard to faith and works. They teach very clearly that there is a as they define it, as salvation. And they say it's by faith. But they say it's by faith and works. You've got to have, you've got to believe and you've got to do this. If you believe and do this, then it cannot save. Somebody say, well, can a Mormon be saved? Well, again, uh, let me say that um, the problem with the, with the Mormon church is more than this. 
But thinking of it only in terms like this, if a man says, well, I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, and I've done all the things the Mormon Church told me to do. Am I not saved? I mean, what harm is there if I add something to, to the whole thing as long as I get the necessary ingredient? That's the argument. The Scripture says that if a person has not accepted Christ, believed in Christ, totally letting go of any kind of effort, human effort, he's not saved. It's as simple as that. If you say, if you say you've got to uh, uh, accept Christ and plus uh, baptism, you can nullify grace plus church membership. You nullify grace. Now, it's hard to define sometimes. I think that, that uh, some well-meaning people lead people to the Lord, and they're very anxious to get them baptized, and so they get them into the tank as quickly as possible, and probably that person is really saved because he accepted Christ apart from the baptism, and the guy just made sure he got into the baptismal tank as quickly afterward as he could. But there's always a danger when you teach baptism as a part of salvation, or along with it, there's always the danger that you're going to nullify the concept of grace. And it's far better. You remember what? Remember the, the um, story of Philip, the Ethiopian eunuch? Now, this man had been in and around Jerusalem, and he knew that they baptized believers. Undoubtedly, he had heard this because he had heard, he had heard all kinds of things undoubtedly there. And yet he said he's reading in Isaiah, he can't understand it. Philip explains it to him. In the process, he undoubtedly talked about what had happened and maybe again reiterated that people had accepted Jesus Christ and then were baptized. And he says, there's water. What prevents me from being baptized? <laughs> Philip said one thing. I've got to make sure you really believe before you can take this step of obedience. It's a matter of faith first and always first. The result was that the man said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And they immediately got down from the chariot and he was baptized and he went on his way rejoicing. Did you see, that was a very important thing to get that prerequisite out of the way. So the error of, the, of Acts 15 is that, historically, of adding works to faith which nullifies grace. All right, now... There's one more thing that I want to see, and that is the effects. The effects. The effects are found in verse 24, which we read a few moments ago, where it says, and this is Acts 15 again, For as much as we have heard that certain who went out from us have troubled you. Now the word troubled there, if I can put it here, T-A-R-A-S-S-O, Terrasso simply means to agitate. To agitate. It was used to speak of the palpitation of the heart. And so, therefore, it's the agitation. They have troubled you, and here's what else they've done. A-N-A-S-K-E-U-A-Z-O. And the word simply means to plunder to plunder. It means literally to pack up baggage. 
but it doesn't mean to pack up your own baggage to go on a trip, but rather to pack up somebody else's baggage. It was the, the idea of a group of troops coming into a city and ravaging the city and carrying out everything they could possibly carry. That's the concept here. And that's what had happened to the church of Jesus Christ. Now, that's why the doctrine of grace has to be taught and taught and taught and retaught. And even tonight, most of you already know this, but I'm going to teach it to you all over again. I already have, haven't I? Why? Because we mustn't ever forget that that's one of the tricks of the enemy. You know why? Human pride wants to do something. It's essential to our pride, to our ego, to our self-sufficiency. Remember the definition of pride is self-sufficiency. The definition of humility is God's sufficiency. Simple as that. Any passage talks about pride or humility. You can see the essence of that right there. That pride is not self-respect or self-worth or the ability to know you can do something. Nor is humility self-effacement. Pride is self-sufficiency where we think we can do it. Please, mother, I'd rather do it myself. Like the old Anison ad. Humility, on the other hand, is when we recognize that in me, that is my flesh, dwells no good thing. I desperately need God. Every breath I take is a gift of grace. And we rely upon grace. That's humility. It's not a matter of a guy going around with a long face or looking seedy or something else like that. That's not it at all. It's a matter simply, does he trust God day by day? That's humility. And humility is essential to receive more of God's grace. Isn't that interesting? God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so you see, we have to understand grace. We have to understand that it's everything from Him and nothing from me. And that that is not only for salvation, but that is the Christian walk. That I can offer nothing in myself because I'm inherently sinful. I can offer nothing that would please God apart from the control of His Holy Spirit in my life. That's so important. And that's grace. You have to understand grace. But you see, there are those that would plunder us. There are those that would strip us of our liberty. There are those that would become legalistic. And there's always that danger. And, and constantly in the church, you fight this problem. I, I believe you have to constantly fight it on every level. It is a very basic issue. And we must avoid that concept which strips us of the grace of God. And so therefore, the Apostle Paul had to do something about it. All right, so now that's the problem. Now, along with that, we need to, we need to recognize that there was also a discussion. There was something that happened in two places. So we'll say here the discussion. First of all, at Antioch, verses 1 and 2. Certain men who came down from Judea taught the brethren, said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, that sounds like quite a discussion, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and the elders about this question. We know that one of them was Titus. And uh, he happened to be a Gentile, so he became sort of the object of the whole thing. Now, the word determined there means, is, is the word etoxon, which simply means to 
to, to appoint or to, to, to make an appointment, a formal appointment. This was the idea that they had been formally appointed for this responsibility. There's so much confusion there that they formally uh, appointed the Apostle Paul and Barnabas and Titus and others perhaps who went with them to go up to Jerusalem and get this question settled once and for all. Now, I, I think we have to say something here, and I think it's important. Don't be surprised within the framework of a growing church that there be times where disputations arise and are dealt with. It's a part, if you please, of the growing pains of the early church and has been a part of the church ever since. But the thing we have to realize is that there are there is a resolution to the problem. We constantly have to pray that there can be, as there was here, resolution without the schism that can come in so easily, without real deep division. Now, there's division here, but it's division on the debate level at this point, and it's not causing a split. Now, the history of the church has been that, that things have been mishandled down through history, mishandled at the leadership level, many times mishandled at other levels, and the result has been that there's been, there's been split. But at the same time, mind you now, and I, I'll say this carefully, had the Apostle Paul been unable to bring into line with what the Word of God, had been, which had been given, had, uh, had to say about this subject, that it was by grace and grace alone, then the division would have been inevitable. If it had not been that they found reasonable men in Jerusalem, then there had to be biblical separation because that is the essence of apostasy. When you add law to grace. And there had to be division. And so sometimes divisions come. And so at Antioch, they said, look, let's try to nip this thing in the bud. Let's deal with it. They sent Paul and Barnabas. But Paul and Barnabas themselves hit the thing head on. No small disputation. You can be sure of that. So then they went to Jerusalem. And verses 4 through 29 give us the story of what happened. And uh, let's just move through it. First of all, there was Paul's report. Verse 4, and I'm just picking up verses here and there. I'll sum it up by reading verse 4 and verse 12 to give Paul's report. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received. That means to welcome. Paradecomai uh, is to welcome. They, were, uh, they, they not only welcomed them, decomai, but they para, uh, they, they welcomed them beside. They actually uh, gave them a, a, a good welcome. They were come to Jerusalem. They were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all the things that God had done with them. First of all, they told all the good things. They shared with them how the Gentiles were coming to Christ and so on. And they also shared in verse 5 about the sect of the Pharisees that had caused problems. And then down in verse 12, And all the multitude kept silence and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. Again, that positive report. Now, they reported the negative, but they reported the positive uh, first and thoroughly so that they understood that the gospel had been taught to those people. So that's the report by Paul. Then there was a recommendation by Peter. 
It says in verse 7, and when, and when there had been much disputing, they had questioned this thing over, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of God, or the word of the gospel, and believe. And God, who knoweth the hearts, bore them witness, giving them the Holy Spirit, even as he did to us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith, not by circumcision, but by faith. That's a key thing there. The Holy Spirit was the seal. That's in verse 8. But then there is the clarification in verse 9 that their hearts were purified by faith, period. That had happened with the Gentiles. Nothing was said at that time about circumcision. Now, therefore, why put God to the test? To put a yoke upon the necks of the disciples. Now, the same thing is true of the church of Jesus Christ today. Wherever legalism would creep into the church, why do you put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples? which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. So there's a recommendation by Peter. And then in verse 14, there is a reconfirmation by James. It says, first of all, in verse 13, after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Brethren, men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon, that is Simon, Peter, hath declared how God first did visit the nations to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, After this I will return, will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, I will build again its ruins, and I will set it up. And then it goes on and says that the residue of men might seek after the Lord, and that all the nations upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all things known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the age. Quoting from Amos chapter 9 and uh, giving a pretty good explanation of that passage of the Scripture. There are three things, really, that are involved in that Amos 9 passage. First of all, God does visit Gentiles. Secondly, after God has visited the Gentiles over a period of time, then Jesus Christ is going to return, and the millennium will then be established. So it was essential that what was happening among the Gentiles take place previous to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now James, who was a Jew, had finally gotten this theology straightened around, and he began to understand Amos. And that was the message that he got. And so he's saying it's, it's, this is to be expected that there will be Gentiles who are receiving the grace of God. That was the reconfirmation. Now it's important to note several things. You notice in verse 6 that the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. The apostles and elders were present, the leaders. Then in verse 22, it becomes obvious that at one point that it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church, the whole church, was involved, at least in being exposed to some of the debate. Thirdly, there were representatives from Antioch. We know that from verse 4, where it says, And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church, the apostles and elders, and they, all, they declared all things that God had done with them. That was the group from Antioch. They were there as well. And then finally, there was the Pharisees sect, which was, in verse 5, there rose, rose up certain of the sect of Pharisees who believed, saying it was needful to circumcise them, to command them to keep the law of Moses. They probably went, went back with them. And so they were probably there as well. 
Now what Peter does in his text is give give a, a plan of salvation. Now that's a very interesting evangelistic text. First of all, he says that there's an offer of salvation to the Gentiles. You see that in verse 7 and also in verse 9. Secondly, the nature of salvation is taught very clearly in verse 9, the purifying of hearts by faith. And in that verse as well, there is the requirement for salvation, and there's only one mentioned, and that is faith. And then finally, there is the source of salvation, and you see that in verse 11, where it says, we believe that through works? No. Through circumcision? No. Through keeping of the law? No. We believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved, even as they. That's the source of salvation. Now, the false teachers were assailed on two points. They were assailed on the fact that they gave as the basis of salvation circumcision, And then the behavior of the believers was the matter of keeping the law. And it was on that basis that Peter gave what he gave in verses 10 and 11. Now therefore, why put God to the test? To put a yoke upon the necks of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Now verse 12 tells us about the miracle work. Paul and Barnabas continued report. And... uh, Then James, of course, gives his passage from Amos 9, and then there are three recommendations that this council makes. Now, this is very, very crucial, a very crucial thing. Here's what he says. Look at verse 19, if you will. This is James still speaking. Wherefore, my judgment is that we trouble not them who from among the Gentiles are turned to God. Do not trouble them but that we write unto them to do several things. That they abstain from pollutions of idols. That was eating meat that had been offered to idols. That was offensive to the Jews. It was not a matter of a requirement. It was a matter of Christian love. Now notice this. They abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication, which were the restrictions of Leviticus 18, probably. That's the way it's to be understood, which really involved the marrying of next of kin. And from things strangled, that of course had to do, uh, and from blood, that had to do with the the Gentiles often did not bleed their animals properly. They ate like uh, the Germans today, blood sausage and that sort of thing, and they had that sort of uh, thing. And that was offensive to the Jews. Now notice, they're to do that. Why? For Moses of old hath in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. There are Jews around who are truly and honestly offended by this sort of thing. Circumcision is a rather private matter. But this is something that is seen publicly. And if these people who profess to be Christians are going around doing these kind of things that are truly offensive to the weaker brother, then it will be a stumbling block in their way. There are Jews all over the place. And so they should abstain from those things just on that basis of love. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send certain men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas named Barsabbas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. And they wrote letters by them after this manner. The apostles and elders and brethren sent greeting unto the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicily. 
For as much as we have heard that certain who went out from among you have troubled you with words, subverting your soul, saying, Ye must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good unto us being assembled with one accord, notice unanimity, to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Notice the, the, the little phrase in there, our beloved. They identified with Paul and Barnabas at the end of this time. You see, they had been, there had been sharp disagreement. But now they had come to what they believed would be a solution to the whole problem. Men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a commendation. We have sent therefore Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the th same things by mouth. They are representing the Christians of Jerusalem, going there to confirm what Paul and Barnabas said. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost. Notice, when they had unanimity, then they knew it was not their voice, but the Spirit of God. And by the way, that's the principle of unanimity. That's the whole principle behind it. And that's why our board, by the way, operates on the basis of unanimity. Believe me, we don't always agree. But when we disagree, we must come to unanimity before we arrive at decisions. And therefore there's a check and balance. But when we do arrive at a decision, then we believe it's the voice of God, not, not the voice of men. Because there's bound to be one man in that room who has the voice of God and he is required to do what God wants him to do even if it disagrees with everybody else. The Spirit of God only has one mind. Therefore, unanimity is always possible as long as men walk with Christ. And where there is disagreement, we have to re-examine, find out what God's trying to tell us. But there was, there was unanimity here. And they said, it's the Holy Spirit that seemed good to him and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. That ye abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from fornication, which, from which, if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well, fare ye well. What was the reason for this kind of a restriction? Was this a false standard being offered? No. It was a matter of love. It was a matter of, of a, a encouraging fellowship between Jew and Gentile. And it was on that basis that they said, this is the thing that will help in this whole problem of bridging this great gap. It was for the sake of fellowship. And so, we got ahead of our story a little bit there. We should have said there was a decision reached. The decision was to send the letter. We've read all of that. And the result was that, of course, the people heard and the, the question of grace was resolved at the Council in Jerusalem Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 is probably the most important chapter in the book of Acts. It was the pivotal point. Maybe Acts chapter 2 is a little more important because of the coming of the Holy Spirit. But as to the significance to the church, the implications on the human level, 15th chapter of, of Acts is absolutely the most important aspect of church doctrine because it solved the problem and beautifully solved the problem of law versus grace at the same time demonstrated the ability to be flexible and give a little 
because of Christian love. And of course, the same thing is taught at the end of the book of Romans, where we have the law of the weaker brother and all of the rest of it. That's a whole other subject that we could get into. But that was the question which arose. Well, now, we would like to, to take time to go through all the rest of this, and uh, I'm afraid that we're not going to have time tonight. But we'll pick up on this next week and finish up on this question of salvation. Then in the fall, we'll pick up on the other subjects from the book of Acts that uh, we have. We yet have to talk about the consequences of salvation and the constraints of salvation in the book of Acts that we see in that early church. But I think it was important enough to spend this evening on this question of law and grace and an understanding of those things that the Spirit of God is giving to us in the book of Acts. Historical book, not a doctrinal book. Nevertheless, the history teaches us some great lessons. And certainly the things that we've shared with you are in line with what's being taught in the epistles, particularly in the book of Galatians. Let's just bow together in a closing moment of prayer. Now, Father, it's with joy that we can say we're not under law but under grace. You've provided a grace principle upon which we can be saved and a grace principle upon which we can serve, a grace principle in regard to our eternal home and our standing with Jesus Christ forever. We're thankful, Lord, that it's all of grace. For, Lord, we, we know that we would boast and become self-sufficient if we could do it any other way. If we could work for our salvation, if we could pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, we just have enough of the flesh in us that we would do just that. And then we would say, who needs you, God? That's how proud we could easily become. And you've not left that option open to us. You've said it's grace or nothing. And so we come in our desperation with our cup empty, realizing only you can fill it. We come to you destitute, mourning because of the way sin has brought us low. We come meekly, recognizing that you are the only one that is sufficient. And as a result, you, pull, you fill our cup full with your marvelous grace. Father, we can't get over that. And so we would just thank you because that's all we can do is render thanks. And even that's by grace. We offer a sacrifice of praise continually, even the fruit of our lips. And you, the Lord, create the fruit of the lips. So even our praise is by grace. We thank you for that. Lift our hearts to you, we pray. Grant to us a deeper understanding of those things that would confuse the issue of salvation so that when we talk to people about Christ, we can make the issue clear and that it may be presented by grace and by grace alone. As we go our several ways, may we go in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, depending upon you for every breath that we breathe, every step that we take, and everything that we do. We'll praise you in Christ's name. Amen.